Jonathan, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. Happy to be here. As I was um, doing some reading about uh, how maybe this documentary, Memory is Our Homeland, came to be, um, it almost brought to memory, it also brought, it brought back to me sort of memories I have of not speaking with my grandmother necessarily, but to my mother-in-law, which is sort of how I found out about the documentary and, and of course, you, yourself. Um, you know, on most occasions when we have dinner together, she'll just start chatting. You know, maybe something at the dinner table reminds her of something or something somebody's wearing or the type of day it is, and she'll just start talking about life Back in back in Arusha, um, and I can't and I can't remember. Maybe I told you when I first called you, but I can't remember what we were talking about that prompted her to tell us about these Polish families that all of a sudden came. Uh, she didn't say to Arusha, but she said there was a, a town uh, nearby. Um, that there was a lot of people from Poland that came there during World War II. She says, nobody knows about this. And whenever my mother-in-law says these things, um, I pull up my phone and I go, is she, is this another one of her long tales that she's telling? And to my surprise, I go, oh, I looked at my wife. She's actually telling the truth. There's, there's something to this. There's, there's actually a documentary that was made about this. And so we started going on the phone and, and I said, I just found Jonathan's number. Let me give him a call. <laughs> talk about this. So, um, so I thought I'd just, just tell you uh, a bit about that, but Jonathan, I mean, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, your, your grandmother, the type of person that, that she was. Um, she was a great storyteller. Um, you know, I also, I, you know, I, I love to listen to her tell her stories and, uh, of course they were quite interesting because they were of her incredible life, which started in Poland, 1928. And, uh, she was born on what was the border of the Soviet Union back then, um, but is now part of Belarus. And uh, when she was 10 years old, um, the Second World War started. And from her perspective, the way that she, you know, the way it impacted her life most directly from the start was that um, basically all of a sudden the, the Soviet army crossed the border into Poland from, uh, from the east and occupied the eastern half of uh, her country. So, uh, and, you know, so that was in September, 1939, September 17th, 1939, two weeks after the Nazis had invaded, um, Western Poland. And there was uh, a lot of confusion reigning at the time. Nobody could understand exactly what the Soviets were doing coming into Poland. Uh, they were making the claim that they were trying to help Poland maintain its territorial sovereignty in the face of German aggression. Of course, that was just a ruse. They were there to actually occupy the country and, and you know, to, to jointly occupy it with uh, Germany. So it is kind of ironic that we're having this conversation today of, of all days when the current president of, Pol of uh, Russia, rather, Vladimir Putin, has just today said that, uh, you know, they're going to have to go into Eastern Ukraine to uh, secure, you know, Russian interests there and, and Russian speakers and Russian citizens. Uh, so it's really, it's quite, quite something that we're talking today. We're having this conversation because it's really, I mean, this is a very historic day from that perspective. Um, but from my grandma's perspective, she was just a kid. She was 10 years old when this all started. So September, 1939, her town, which was like just a small farming community in the eastern borderland of Poland and the Soviet Union, um, saw the first presence of Soviet troops. And 
between September 1939 and February 1940, you know, there were no one was quite sure on what was going to happen next. But then, you know, February 1940, they got a knock on the door and uh, it was uh, the NKVD, the secret police of the Soviet Union, who were there to, and who gave them 15 minutes and said, OK, get everything, you know, get, get basically pack your things. You're leaving and you're not coming back and so you know my grandmother Kaja who was 10 at the time left with her parents and her her sister and her two brothers and you know they were loaded onto trains and they were sent deep into Siberia from Poland um, and they were among hundreds of thousands of Poles who went through that so you know I say all that it's like that's the history of what happened but it's it's just sort of you know you asked me about my grandmother and she was a fantastic storyteller a very you know dignified human being somebody who you would cross in the street and you just say you know maybe you think oh look at that you know nice eastern european lady but you would never know that she'd had the life that she led except for the fact that she carried herself with like uh you know with a, i don't know a certain quiet dignity that's like hard to put a finger on, but you know, but it's something that I found again and again with a lot of these survivors. So she was, uh, you know, she was she was a really great storyteller, but kind of not shy, but a little bit reserved in her own way. She didn't go out of her way to be the center of attention, but she, uh, once she started talking, she would, you know, bring you from Poland to Siberia to Kazakhstan, Iran, uh, India. Tanzania, where she ended up in a camp, and then to England before coming to Montreal. So she was an incredible person. And on the other hand, she was a very modest and unassuming person that, again, you would never know she'd gone through this, but uh, but she had. So yeah, she, I, I mean, I feel lucky to have known her, not just because she was like, you know, she was my grandmother. And sure, yeah. That, that, she was like a second mom to me, but, uh, you know, because she was actually an extraordinary person. So, yeah, it's. Uh, Do you that's, remember that's in, in the documentary, there's clips of, you know, present day uh, of chatting with her. And, and I know before the movie was released and correct me if I'm wrong, she had passed before the movie was released because I know you sort of finished yeah. it. You, you sp There was some time there, but there's some clips yeah. where you're much younger. Um, yeah. And I don't know whether it was a school project that you were working on that, that your grandmother mm -hmm. was a, a subject in, but I'm curious, how old, do you remember how old you were? Um, or, yeah, how old you were when you first started, I don't want to say paying attention, but, you know, showing an interest in, in these stories. Well, it's funny, you know, because, I mean, on the one hand, uh, I was interested from my first memories of her. So I was, you know, maybe four years old or something. Like my first memory of my grandmother is literally of her telling me about growing up in Africa. Um, you know, and I was in her house in, in uh, the suburbs of Montreal in LaSalle and, you know, memories of like a house full of aunts and uncles and, you know, just Polish relatives, just like a big, raucous, loud, noisy house, you know, cabbage cooking on the stove, cooking like cabbage rolls, guantki, they call them Polish. And I was sitting on the ground and I was like looking through a children's atlas, um, you know, from, I don't know, from the 60s or something, illustrated children's atlas, map of the world, showing the different continents with the animals and the landscapes, you know, like little drawings of it. And she pointed to the place that, you know, that she had grown up, as she put it. And, you know, there were elephants and there were lions and tigers and there was maybe Mount Kilimanjaro. I don't remember precisely. I remember the animals though. And she said, that's where your babcha grew up. That's your grandmother. That's she's saying, that's, that's where I grew up. And so I remember being, you know, fascinated by it. As a kid, as a little kid, I remember just imagining the animals and everything. Uh, but I never thought at the time, I didn't think that that was something strange that my, you know, little Eastern European grandmother had grown up in a traditional mud hut for her adolescence anyway, in Eastern Africa. 
So it really just sort of, you know, the way we, we, we absorb stories from our, our parents and grandparents and families, you know, I just took it for granted that my family had come from there that uh you know all these aunts aunties and uncles and you know the older generation had all almost all of them grown up in eastern africa as refugees so it was really only when i got older because you know like especially as a young young boy as a young man like as a teenager you're listening to the stories of usually of male heroism you know of like my grandfather had escaped a concentration camp and you know he'd been smuggled out of Europe by the resistance and he joined the Polish army and he'd gone to fight. You know, my Canadian grandfather had, had fought as well. He, he'd been there for D-Day and all this stuff. But, you know, meanwhile, there were all these older women in my family, you know, who were in their, I guess, 60s or 50s when I was a kid, you know, who had also been like badass OG, you know, fighters in their own way right but they were fighting for survival they weren't fighting with guns they were just fighting to survive as refugees as people who were displaced so it was really only when i got into my 20s and my late 20s uh you know uh, i basically i had an internship in in south africa um and i spent you know six months in southern africa like going around botswana south africa swaziland around that area and i was like shit it's kind of weird that my grandmother grew up not far from here. Like, what is that actually about? And so I came home and had just a completely different perspective on her and her life. And it was, you know, it's, I don't know how much you've traveled, you know, like what you, if you've been around the world or what, but like the only person who really understood my travels to, to Asia or East Africa or whatever was my elderly grandmother who like, you know, it didn't make sense to me that she was like the, the biggest traveler that I knew. But then I realized co coming back from, from like in my twenties, like going around Europe, Asia, Africa, whatever, everywhere I went, like basically my grandmother had already been there, you know? And so it like, it really gave me perspective that I'd taken for granted that she was just this, uh, you know, this figure like grandmothers are in, in, in almost every culture, you know, like she, she had this, this very important role. But it was only when I came back, you know, again, I was like a little bit older, a, a little, a little smarter, a little wiser, and just a little more appreciative of the fact that she was not just a survivor, but she was somebody who didn't define herself that way as a, as a victim of anything on on the cup she was just you know she was she, she was just tough and i just came to appreciate that you know because like i realized that i was way more innocent than she was and that was so it was for me growing up a bit it was realizing like i got nothing on her you know my five foot two grandmother you know living in her in her apartment in LaSalle was a badass basically <laughs> you know, really can, so yeah i can imagine yeah. that were you already um interested in storytelling and filmmaking at that time you know i'd always been interested in storytelling pretty much from a young age i read a lot as a kid like i loved books and and movies and and stories in general but also i grew up in a house like of these people you know my grandmother telling her stories her sister their friends their cousins like all these people that that were like them were, were survivors really of uh, you know the poles anyway the, the that polish part of my family because uh, my dad's Irish Canadian or, or was Irish French Canadian, but yeah, so I grew up with a lot of storytellers, and uh, yeah, so they 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 had me interested in it. But it's when I was in South Africa doing this internship, I, I started basically filming people, you know, in in the suburbs of Johannesburg and around South Africa in community communities like community organizations, just uh, sort of yeah following people around, getting them to talk about their lives and their stories. And I was like, this, this is what I like to do. So when, that's where it started. I was 29 yeah. Yeah, that year. When did you decide the first time 
that you wanted to it's somehow tell the story of your your grandmother's travels and maybe it, i'm going to guess it wasn't you know what we what we can see today i don't know was that the same story that you wanted to tell back when you f first started yeah i mean there are a couple components i guess to your question the first is like it it was a long process to get to the point that you know like you know just to become just to get to the place where i felt uh confident enough to point you know to pick up a camera point it to her and say like i can be a filmmaker i want to be a filmmaker i want to make this film you know i was already you know like i said 29 30 i think when i i did a doc, this documentary program at, at enis in montreal but like the seeds of doing this story were planted when i was a kid really i mean it was like and it's in the film, I tell a couple of these anecdotes, but being, you know, remembering her talking about having like this, she sparked my imagination from a young age, her stories sparked imagination in me of her travels. Then I went to McGill, I did an undergrad in uh, political science and philosophy there. And, you know, this is the late 90s, I'm studying at McGill, and it's been 10 years, barely since the end of the Cold War, since the Soviet Union dissolved since the archives were opened in the Soviet Union, in Russia. And none of my professors knew anything about these Polish refugees in Africa. Uh, and there was one person who basically not denied that they'd been there, but sort of questioned me like, are you sure about that? Like, maybe you should check your sources. And my sources were my family, you know, it was my grandmother. So it was like, that was when I was, whatever, 2021, probably, I just sort of filed it away again. But it, you know, it, it's with time, it's sort of, I pieced it together that like, you know, not only had my grandmother and my family gone through this crazy history as refugees, as immigrants, but that it had been erased, you know, like that there was that, that like erasure of, uh, of trauma, you know, and that I, we weren't using those words back then, really, but that in a sense that I'd been gaslit by this professor and, you know, that, uh, yeah, that, that sort of planted a seed. And then when I went and did this, this sort of the, uh, documentary program, we were doing some journaling, like as an exercise in our class. And we started talking about our families and, you know, where, what our backgrounds were, where we were coming from. And I started telling the story of, you know, how my family had ended up in Canada. My, my mom came as a refugee with her parents and how my grandmother had gone through this thing. And people were just like, what? She, she came from where? I was like, hey, yeah, she was like a refugee in Tanzania. Yeah, she spent the ages of 13 to 20 living in, a, you know, like a small hut with no door, like just a door hole at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah, that's where she's from. And realizing that people found it interesting and I don't know, it validated that history. Yeah, and it, it so it, it really, you know, and it's like, that, you know, like I grew up in Ottawa. My, my you know, my, my last name is Duran. I'm, I'm like a white Catholic kid from the suburbs, you know. I'm, it's easy to to be French and English because my because of my family name and whatever, but and yet there was always this story in my family that that made us, or at least made part of our family, outsiders and others, you know. So I, I always felt a little piece of cognitive dissonance between this idea that I you know it was our family was integrated, whatever I, you know, I had friends from everywhere, but like. Um, there was this part of our family story that was unresolved. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, when I when my mother in law first told me the story, and then when I found out about your film and you, and I started, you know, just doing some simple research, right? And it was like, I don't ever remember anyone telling me, you know, about World War II in that way. It's like, no, the Russians at that time were the good guys. You know, they're part of the good guy team. Um, nope. but they, they actually, they invaded Poland. I, and I, I'm trying to remember, I, I can't remember what, what I was told, but it was probably along the lines of, uh, you know, the Germans, the Nazis invaded Poland and Russia went in to help. 
Um, not that yep. Belarus all of a sudden took shape, you know, half half of Poland essentially, and uh, yeah, it was just just mind boggling. My family and I we went to Eastern Europe. I want to say the summer of twenty nineteen, I believe, and so we went to. Poland. We stayed in. Oh my goodness! What's the name of that town? I can't remember off the top of my head. It wasn't Warsaw. We were told to go somewhere else, which was much more historic. Krakow. Krakow. Thank you. Yeah, Krakow. Yeah, yeah in the south. Beautiful so city. Stayed, like, oh, just beautiful. We stayed there. We uh, took a day trip to uh, to Auschwitz, um, and even going through there. I mean, that was horrendous. That took a while to sort of recover from just as a visitor. But even there, I don't remember anything about, you know, these other guys as well that uh, that did something to uh, to all the, you know, all the people that lived in Poland as well. But um, it's amazing as a student sort of facing your professor. And I can just imagine, you know, if, it, if that was me, you know, what would I be going through? Do I go, oh, maybe my parents who just came to this country don't know what they're talking about. Maybe this professor does, or whether I, you know, be someone like yourself that go, no, my family went through this stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, I'd I'd uh, I'd soaked up all the official history very well through my like elementary school, high school, you know, like going into university. I'd, I, you know, I read a lot as a kid and as a teenager. I I said I knew history a bit, but none of it was mentioned. Uh, but there are reasons for that. The reasons for that, I mean, you know, like to to use the big words, like what the Soviet Union did in Eastern Poland at that time was ethnic cleansing. It involved mass deportations of people into slave labor conditions, you know, where hundreds of thousands of people potentially died. So it, what happened between 1939 and 1941 was, uh, was very dark. Uh, the problem is that because the Soviet Union also helped defeat the Nazis and became allied with the West, when they had the Nuremberg trials in 1946, you know, to create the entire post-Second World War legal structure for, you know, to legal response and to deal with genocide and war crimes, one of the countries, you know, one of the main countries on, on the, on the, you know, that was judging the Nazis was the Soviet Union. So, England and the States and Canada and France and the rest of those countries, they couldn't point out or draw attention to the crimes that had been committed by the Soviet Union, which were documented, which were known, proof of which exists in archives in the United States, in England. Like I've seen the documents there in my film. They knew exactly what had happened. They knew exactly what had happened, but they couldn't bring attention to it because that would undermine case against Germany by drawing attention to the fact that the same thing, some of them had been committed by the Soviet Union. So the history was erased explicitly by the Soviets, also within Polish, uh, with comment within Poland, sorry, communist Poland. Nobody there knew the story um, officially. And in countries like ours here in Canada and in the States, nothing was taught about it. Even in the Cold War, even though in the Cold War, the Soviet Union was like our adversary, ostensibly, nothing was spoken about. So it's uh, it's very strange, but that's how history works. Yeah. Um, you took a, a break, I don't know if that's the right term, uh, when uh, your grandmother passed away. Um, did you always know you were going to come back and finish the film or... Well, yes, that's like yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, she passed away in 2012, so I had started, you know, filming a little bit in 2008, 2009. First trip to Poland and Belarus in 2010, 2011. I I go back to East Africa, and and uh, I find the village that she's from in in Belarus, you know, formerly Poland. Uh, and then she passed away very suddenly in 2012, just as I was I was doing an internship or sorry, a residency um, in Berlin at a film festival, working on this project and my grandmother passed away like right, 
right around then. So uh, I, I'd always envisioned the film basically as her story told by her, by her sister or by a couple of the, you know, people in their periphery. So when she passed away, I felt like I lost not just my storyteller, but my historian, you know, like the main historian of her life. And uh, I did, of course, she was, the, she, she was the, you know, she was an archive onto herself, like every survivor is, you know, to talk about these things. But at the same time, I realized it was my story too. And, you know, coming from that history that it was important to me to keep it alive and find a way to tell it because it was part of me. I mean, not just uh, culturally, but, you know, depending on how you think about, you know, genetics and whatnot, or just inherited, uh, you know, socialized inheritance of these stories, like it's definitely part of me and part of my family. So I, I felt like uh, there was no way I could put it down. I couldn't, I couldn't turn my back on it. I had to tell it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing there's, you know, to, to make a film, you, you need enough material. But when does mm -hmm. it come to a point, Jonathan, where there's there's enough for the film? Uh, because I'm sure there's probably a lifetime of research that you could continue to continually, you know, bring to light more information or more data or whatever it is. Um, when, when did you know, okay, I have enough to, to tie a bow on, on this project? Um, I mean, that's a good question, but I mean, the, 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 the honest truth is that there was funding that required me to finish the film. So uh, that was, you know, it could have just gone on open-ended. Uh, you know, I've kept studying this history. It's not like it's finished just because I made the film. Uh, you know, when things happen, like what's happening today in, in Russia and, and Ukraine, like it, it, I feel invested in it, you know, because it's, it, it's part of the same history, you know, so um, how did I feel it was finished? So I found there's this archive in London, right, that, that has a large amount of uh, Polish government in exile documents from the Second World War. So the Polish government is run out of Poland when the Nazis invade, they head to Paris. So the Polish government is located in Paris and then the Nazis push into France. The Poles end up going to London. So the Polish government is in London for the better part of World War II. And of course, there's like correspondence and there's you know ministry paperwork. Like the government is still functioning, even though it's outside of Poland. And all of the documentation that they had stayed in London after 1945, when the war officially ended, because Poland became communist. So they couldn't bring the government, you know, the government that had been in place before the war. That government stayed in London, and so did all of the paperwork that they amassed over the course of World War II. So that paperwork ended up being warehoused uh, in a uh, in a private, like in a basically in a building that protected it till the end of the war. And with time, it became a museum. So basically, to answer your question. I found documents in that archive that had been handwritten by my family and 18,000 other Polish refugees in East Africa. So these were, you know, it's like the processing papers, basically, like folks were arriving from all over the place, you know, but it escaped the Soviet Union for the most part. So about 18,000 Polish refugees ended up in 20 something camps across East Africa, you know, Uganda, Kenya, um, Tanzania, down into Rhodesia, northern southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, a few went through Mozambique, some in South Africa. So I found the paperwork basically that proved, not just proved, it was actually like handwritten by my grandmother, my great aunt, my great grandmother, you know, the rest of the family. The paperwork that was for me symbolizing, you know, the physical trace, like the document, the artifact that that 
the, you know, my professor and others had, had called into question or had asked for back in the day, like, where's the proof? Okay, you got this story, great, that, that great story, but where's the proof, which was a very, you know, tricky proposition in cases of ethnic cleansing where paperwork is deliberately destroyed, right? So I found these papers and I was like, this is it. Like I'm looking at a handwritten page filled out, you know, by my, at the time, 13 year old grandmother, her fingerprint, her, her like, you know, tiny cursive child's handwriting. And I was like that, you know, I'm coming into contact with this paper that is at this point, whatever, you know, 75 years old or something, 80 years old. Uh, that to me was like, okay, this is the, this is how the film ends is, is like tying it together from the beginning. It's oral history. It's, it's me like absorbing all this over the course of my life, basically. And it, and the film becomes like a collage of all these different elements. And here's the final piece. But then the incredible, something incredible happened, which was like, I had a conversation when I was in London, finding and filming those papers. And essentially an archivist there mentioned some film reels that they had from Africa, potentially. So I asked if he could digitize them. And, you know, we're sitting there editing the film, it's almost done. And all of a sudden I get an email that says, hey, we digitized that film reel from uh, Southern Africa, here's a link. So I watch it and it's uh, nine minutes of like B-roll unedited footage from the camp that my family was in. And not to, you know, give a spoiler or whatever, but in one of those shots, I actually saw my grandmother as a kid in that camp in Tanzania. So that, you know, jaw dropped, chills in my, on the back of my neck. I was like, okay, this is really the end. This is the thing. This is. This is a this is a home movie shot by you know the propaganda department of the British War Office in 1946 or something, 45 whenever must have been during the war, um, and I'm looking at this thing that sat there unused for like all those years. So that for me was the end. That was like okay, this is this is really the end because I found these images and I'm using them to tell the story that was never told using it. So that was, that was really for me a special moment to find that. I mean, it's like <laughs> the chances of that happening. Yeah, I remember that in the documentary. That was, that was powerful. That was so very yeah. powerful. It, it brings to question, you know, this whole idea of proof. Um, and I know that's not necessarily what, what your movie is about, but I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, there, there's certain cultures where this idea of proof doesn't exist. It's like if 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 your grandmother, your mother-in-law tells this story, then, then you you believe that that's that's what it was. There's no need for is there paperwork to corroborate that? Is there a whole movie that that can show this? Right. You know, it's 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 fascinating. This this idea of of uh, of proof. And, and evidence outside of oral. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's something that preoccupies me too. I mean, uh, you know, I studied philosophy in, in undergrad and uh, one of the, uh, I remember one of the things we studied or, or read about was like the definition of, or the distinction between poetic truth and historical truth. And I can't remember if it's Aristotle or Plato. I think it's Aristotle, but anyway, one of the ancient Greeks says at the end of the day, poetic truth is actually more truthful than factual truth. And we, we tend to think that, you know, facts matter more and you need uh, forensic evidence, you know, of, of an event. But at the same time, what I saw was, with my grandmother, and I mean, I've seen this throughout life, just as a human being, just with people, you know, telling their stories or me telling mine, is that storytelling itself, like, contains a type of truth that sometimes the facts can get muddled, but like the emotion that's being conveyed 
is the more important thing sometimes. If you know what I mean, like the, the human experience that's being told, like that's, it's worth honing in on that and paying attention to it because that can actually be more truthful than, you know, whether the person turned right or turned left and whether it was on February 21st or on February 22nd that they did it, you know, it's what was going through their mind when that happened, what was motivating them. So that, yeah, that tension is, is like an important one, I think. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, like, because sure, there are times I'll listen to people telling stories and I'm just like, okay, wait, the, that doesn't really add up. But if they're telling a good story and they're, they're a reliable narrator, then you gloss over like the, the details, little right? details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's, it's just after, after uh, finding out about this documentary, you know how we all carry our cell phones everywhere. Um, I now have it in my pocket at the dinner table. My mother-in-law starts telling a story. I'm pulling it out. I'm pressing record. And she knows. She knows she's being recorded. You know? It's smart. It's it's press record. And I tell my wife, I said, your mother has so many stories Mm -hmm. that will go with her if nobody records this. And I said, it doesn't even need to go to the world. I'll just upload it and just you and your sisters will have access to it. And if you want to make it something bigger, make it something bigger. But for now, let's just capture it. Right. Well, where is she? She should be part of the podcast. You should have her. Uh... She will need to get one. her. She, yeah, she needs to get her Separate. hearing aids in. <laughs> okay, fair enough. How old is yeah. she? Ask. She's 80 something. Okay. So she, yeah. she, does she remember the, the polls? Like in uh, the camps? She was yeah. a kid and she, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. She remembers. She remembers. That's really amazing. And she, and, and it was something, you're um, in the film, your grandmother and her sister, you guys are in London, I think, or in England somewhere. Yep, in Sheffield, and, England, yeah. And it's just amazing that the stuff that they still have. Yeah. I, th- I think you're asking for paperwork. There's a, there's a disagreement on a date. Exactly. Uh, you know, or how old they were or something. And they go, no, I've got the yeah, paper. You know, and yeah. they're looking at, I'm like, I can't believe they've kept this. Like it was meaningful enough yeah. for all these years from kids that they thought to keep it and not yeah. to get rid of it. It's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, that had an impact on me to, to see that they had those papers. I mean, growing up, you know, like I just, I knew that my grandmother had her box of papers, right? And her box of papers was like her high school diplomas and and report cards from Tanzania, like, you know, from from the camps. Um, Yeah, knowing that that stuff was important to her. Also my uh, other side of the family, but my dad was a forensic detective. So, yeah, so he was a homicide detective in Ottawa. Uh, So, it, so it's like, yeah, I think I absorbed some of his uh, influence as well because his life was spent, you know, trying to piece together the little broken pieces of, of a puzzle, trying to get the bigger picture out of like finding a few puzzle pieces on the ground and like trying to make sense of how they all fit together. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, that scene with my grandmother and her sister was that experience for me, like not just as a, you know, as a scene in a film, but actually for me as a person being there, you know, having trusted my grandmother's memory and her stories, because she lived in Montreal, her sister lived in England. So I didn't see her sister all that often. I trusted my grandmother's memory and all of a sudden we're in England at her sister's place. Her sister is just as convinced uh, that she's right. And they are disagreeing about like a full calendar year of, their lives like no 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 you're crazy it was 1941 what are you talking about it's 1942 you know and they're sitting there fighting over this i'm like so what is the truth you know like what which year was it and then realizing like just to come back to what i was saying before it actually didn't matter which year was true in a sense it wasn't about which year was true it's that they were both so committed like they were so uh it was so important to them to remember correctly that that's what was important. It's not which year it was. It's that it was the significance of memory. 
you know, and, it, and yeah, that that's what was important. So, and I mean, that scene in that film, like in, in, in the film that has, wherever I've shown the movie and people from whatever background, like whatever story, that ends up being the most relatable often is like everybody remembers that because we've all experienced it. You're like, you know what I mean? Or you've seen it, you, either you're the one arguing or you're watching your, whatever, your your mother and her sister, or, you know, your friends do it, so. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing because f with dates, I'm the worst. You know, yeah. I have to bookend it with, when did I go to university? When did I graduate? When did I get married? Those are the dates that I'll remember. So things that'll happen, I go, where was I? You know, so then I'll, I'll have to, it was between this year and that year. You know, I yeah. still forget when the Jays won their World Series. I go, was it 91, 92, or was it 92, 93? You know? Um, yeah. I'll have to say yeah. it was the year after I started university. You know? Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's fascinating that people can remember dates um, yeah. outside of just, you know, an event that happened. You know, because an event that happened, I can imagine that that makes you feel something. Um, yeah. But a date is, you know, it's just another Monday to me, right? You know? Yeah, I think the, the yeah, our era, it's, it's harder for us to retain that information, too, because we have so many devices that can do it for us, you know? Yeah. Where Google remembers yeah, older, for us. Yeah, which has its own problems. But, yeah, my, yeah, my grandmother, her sister, all of those people, like, to a person, the ones who do tell stories, because not all of them do, yeah. The ones that do tell stories tend to have very, very sharp, lucid memories, like well into their 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's pretty impressive because, yeah, I can't, I, I can barely remember what I ate for breakfast today, you know, <laughs> or what I was doing two weeks ago. So I hear you. Um, tell me about showing this film in Moscow. That must have been outside of people that are interested, you know, it, it must have been interesting you must have come across a lot of people that were not happy that you were showing that film it's uh it was a really interesting and fascinating experience you know because I, uh, as a as a culture as a country you know i have tremendous uh like a deep affinity for russian culture and art and history there's so much that's come out of that place that's, uh, you know, important to, to our collective human culture. Um, at the same time, it's a country with a really brutal history of, uh, you know, um, people being controlled, dominated and sent to their deaths by tyrants and dictators. And uh, it, it was, it was complicated to go back because I, I had this, uh, you know, semi-romantic idea that I was going to fly into Warsaw and then take the train to Moscow because the film was invited to screen at the Moscow Film Festival, like the Moscow International Film Festival in 2019, which I was surprised by. I'm like, why are they inviting me to show a film about the, you know, occupation and uh, the uh, annexation of Poland in Moscow? like under Putin and everything, but, you know, it, it's a complicated country. They do this kind of thing. It's like it would, a film like that would never show on state TV, but they will invite people to show these films in, in festivals and small, you know, locales. So, so I took the train from Warsaw to Moscow. It's a 21 or 22 hour train ride through Belarus. And it actually goes on the same train track that my family was sent to Russia on. So I went past the village that my family was from, like on my way to Moscow to show the film about them being deported along that same train track that I was on. So, you know, it was kind of trippy to, to like get to the point because I knew I've studied old maps of the Soviet Union from the 1940s. I knew where the trains had gone and, you know, where they'd split off. So there was like a certain point where I'm on this train line. I knew that 80 years earlier, my entire family and hundreds of thousands of others had been deported to uh, slave labor camps, essentially in, in Siberia. And I'm, you know, except there's a point where the train, my train turns off and, you know, I'm, I'm in a nice, you know, kid, like kitchen car, sleeper train, whatever I'm doing just fine. 
but all of these people had been sent up, you know, to, to face some pretty horrible things up there. So point being, I get off of the train station, I'm being picked up by somebody from the film festival, you know, uh, and it's this, you know, nice young Russian woman who comes up and she's like, so you must be the Canadian filmmaker. I was like, yes, that's me. She's like, everyone in the office found it very strange that someone would take a train instead of fly. It's like, well, you know, I thought it would be nice to, to go on this journey. And she's like, and how was your nostalgia trip? And I was like, oh, that was quite lovely. Thank you. Um, bottom line, um, you know, it's a very cultured cinema audience there and people know their history, you know, like, People know the story of their country. I think once I, in in the Q and A's and all that, like once I acknowledge that uh, none of the polls I talked to ever had anything um, bad to say about ordinary Russians ever. On the contrary, they would, you know, always say the average people that came across in the Soviet Union at that time, like 1940 to 42 or so, they owed their lives to them in many cases, you know, because these are people under the Soviet Union, like at that time, who were suffering, you know, and most of the Gulag victims were Russians, everyday Russians, right? So once I acknowledged at the screenings, like that uh, this wasn't a film about Russian, um, you know, uh, crimes or something. It was about government crimes, like that that the the regime at the time had organized this this terrible violence. That it wasn't really about the people per se of the country. Then everything changed really in, in those experiences because people understood that, like people would relate to the film because they would say, "We also grew up with our grandparents telling these stories about." forced labor camps and losing family members and people disappearing so you know so it was really yeah it was uh, complicated but uh, a beautiful thing because it, it really at the end of the day the film i tried to make is not a, really meant to be about people's like a, a, it's it the intention is not to focus on the pain and the suffering it's to show the dignity and the humanity of the survivors and you know, in Russia and in other places I've shown it, that's what people identified with. Like they, they don't, it's a Polish story, but it's about a universal experience, which is about overcoming pain and, and trauma really. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I feel very grateful to have had a chance to go, especially because, you know, a year later, like the pandemic started and all traveling stopped. So, um, to, to have gone, I went twice to Russia. The film screened a couple more times there, actually. Yeah, I feel very fortunate. Uh, I hope to go back someday. Good. Um, I read somewhere that there's a, an actual um, Polish orphan reunion. Mm -hmm. um, is that still, I, I guess, the past couple of years, I don't know what's happening, what's not happening. Uh, but does this community still exist? Is it still communicating yep. with one another? Yeah. Not only does it still exist, they are, uh, you know, they were instrumental in helping this film get finished because once my grandmother passed, like I, you know, I interviewed her sister and their cousin and a few other people, but really what I started doing was going to these reunions because even though my grandmother was gone, I still wanted to connect to that history and, and, you know, piece it together for myself and for the film. So I started going to them in Connecticut. I went in South Africa. I went in Poland. I went in England, um, in Montreal. So, you know, th these are people in many cases who ended up orphaned. Right. So they lost their parents in Russia or, or somewhere along the way. So they see one another, the survivors, I mean, see one another as a family. So, so, you know, the pandemic has shifted things, but they, you know, have stayed in touch because really, I mean, they, they've known each other since they were kids, many of them. And uh, yeah, if 
if, if you're an elderly Polish person who wants to talk about your fond memories of the sun rising up over Mount Kilimanjaro when you were uh, you know, a teenager or whatever, that you're going to have to find other people who live the same thing. So it's, uh, yeah, they're special. They're really special events, you know, like to go to see like, I really love hanging out with elderly people in general, you know, but then to see these people like who had such a difficult uh, childhood come together and have such fond memories. It's really uh, instructive for me as a younger person. That is amazing. Wow. The movie, the documentary is memory is our homeland. Um, I know the, the doc came out a few years ago. Uh, so I, I do want to thank you for, for taking the time uh, to Pleasure. chat with me about it. Uh, it was, it was just a great film to watch. Uh, well done on it, Jonathan. Um, if people want to find out more about the doc, if people want to watch the doc, where, where can they go? Uh, go to memoriesarehomeline.com, the website, and if you click through, you can uh, find the Vimeo on demand. There's a link there. Uh, it has been screening intermittently on Al Jazeera, uh, the, the TV channel, Al Jazeera, the broadcaster. Um, but their timing, it, it's intermittent, so you have to go and uh, see if it's available. Although now, with everything going on in Russia, who knows, they might be uh, bringing it back. So, Yeah. Memory is our homeland.com. Uh, my guest has been Jonathan Durand. Jonathan, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. It was uh, not only a pleasure to talk to you, but a pleasure to get a phone call from someone who knew about this history. That, that really uh, made my night when that happened. And it was nice to talk to you, Karim. Well, thanks for picking up the phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I... <laughs> I don't, I don't always from unknown numbers, but uh, I'm glad I picked up yours. So awesome. there you go. Jonathan, before I let you go, um, is there anything you wanted to make sure um, listeners knew about, or do you think we, we, we did a good job covering everything? I think we did a pretty good job of covering it. I'd say, uh, yeah, I mean, find out about this history, look into it if you're, you're curious about it. There's more and more stuff coming out, which for me is has been nice like the the one little last anecdote i would say is uh in the you know couple of years a few years now since the film came out i've started getting emails from people and in some cases uh undergraduate students saying my grandparents went through the same thing or someone i know went through the same thing i was researching my that history and i came across the film so that that's a good feeling to know that there are people in the same place I was 20 plus years ago who are, who are finding the film and who are interested in their history. So that's uh, so learn your roots, know where you come yeah. from, study your history and be, you know, absolutely curious. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and listen to uh, your elders as they tell these stories of back home. You feel uh, you'll find it fascinating for sure. Always, yeah. I remember they're 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 the bridge to the past, you know. Even if, uh, yeah, you, yeah, listen to your elders. Yeah. Awesome, Jonathan. This has been great. Um, thank you again. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you too.